<laughs> Thank you very much. Great to be here with you again this week. Pastor Ryan and uh, Pastor Mary and Pastor Lori and uh, uh, Nikki and I had the privilege of going to uh, the Willow Creek Leadership Summit this past week. I was there actually for Campus Crusade for Christ and we all sat together and had a great time and uh, two days of teaching on leadership from a business and a church perspective. And the final session was taught by Bill Hybels, who pastors this mega church in Chicago, 20,000 members. And um, his last session of the whole two days has been resonating in my heart over the whole weekend because he said something there that uh, is applicable to what I would like to share with you this morning. And he says that the, 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 uh, the local church is the hope of the world. What a beautiful statement that is, isn't it? And I'd like to just uh, amend that a little bit, if I could actually amend something that Bill Hybels says. <laughs> I would like to say that an evangelizing and discipling local church is the hope of the world. And that, that would include us right here uh, in Green Bay, right here in, in De Pere, that uh, there are people you run into every day, people at Walmart, people at Festival people at West Appear High School, people that put your place of employment in there that have been born and they grow up and they go throughout their life. And unless their path intersects with somebody from a, an evangelizing, discipling local church, they'll continue on in, in their life and go through the, 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 uh, the, the mill that this world can bring upon us and perhaps live their whole life without ever having the opportunity to truly know Jesus as Lord and Savior, unless they intersect with somebody from Life Church who says, I have had the privilege of receiving the gift of eternal life, and I would like to share that gift with you. And that's what I'd like us to focus on here this morning. Last week we talked about uh, discipleship kind of in an introductory type way, and uh, we we uh, took our shoes off at the end of the service as a way of, of sealing the covenant with the Lord to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, the way God spoke to Joshua and to Moses and to others where he said, all right, I'm starting something new with you. Take off your shoes. This ground is holy. I don't know if anybody throughout this week thought of that when you slipped your shoes off uh, at night or when you come in the house, but I hope you did. That was a little connection there, hopefully, that was made. And today... I'd like us to look at uh, the second characteristic of what Jesus says a disciple looks like. Uh, there's uh, six altogether. We looked at one last week, and we're going to look at another one here this morning. And uh, if you'll just think with me for a minute, kind of like about your hand, uh, I think there's, there's five important aspects to the Christian life, like you have five fingers on one hand, that if, if you'll nail these five things down, you will live a victorious Christian life. And those five things happen to be the, the five points that are left in our, in our little discipleship series here. Uh, I know this sounds a little bit like children's church, but I, I don't know, it seems to help me remember things if I do it like this. But uh, you've got Bible, prayer, worship, fellowship, and witness. I believe those are the five pillars to a victorious Christian life. If you want to really enjoy your life as a believer, if you want to live a victorious Christian life and really make an impact for the kingdom, you, you've got to nail down Bible study, regular Bible study. You've got to nail down prayer, meet with God every day. 
You've got to understand what it means to worship, and that includes stewardship of our time and talent and treasure. And then fellowship, interacting, learning from other believers is so important. And then witness, what does it mean to, uh, to be a witness for Christ? And so we're going to focus on that last one here today, uh, Bible, prayer. Would you say that with me real quick? Lift up your hand if you would with your fingers. Number one, ready? Bible, prayer, worship, fellowship, witness. Those are the five keys, the five pillars to a successful, victorious Christian life. Now, last week we started in Luke chapter 14, and we're going to look there in just a couple of minutes. Uh, I want to read something to you before we look to Luke chapter 14, however. Um, the message today has to do with, uh, uh, well, I'd hope to get to, uh, to two of those, but actually, oh, thank you. If, if you need a Bible, <laughs> would you raise your hand? If you need a Bible, we're going to turn to the Scriptures in just a minute. If you want to follow along in the Bible, raise your hand, and they will give you a Bible. You can even take that Bible with you if you want, and we'll replenish the stock. Here's another one. Great. Some of you might have 40 or 50 Bibles at home from taking a Bible every week. And <laughs> as long as you give them away, I think that's all right. I <laughs> um, wanted to talk to you about, uh, about witnessing and about worship, and specifically about uh, this uh, aspect of stewardship. We'll look at that in verse 33. Because these, these five things that I just mentioned, Bible, prayer, worship, fellowship, and witness, are, I, I believe, uh, in our DNA as Christians. And here, here's what I mean by that. Uh, the Jewish leaders, the, the Pharisees, were always trying to trap Jesus in what he would, would say. They're always trying to figure out a way to disprove him and trap him in his own words. And one day... One of these uh, Pharisees came up to him and, and they said, well, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And then Jesus replied, well, let me see one of your coins. So they, they gave him a coin and he looked at the coin and he said, well, whose, whose picture or whose image is stamped on this coin? And they said, well, it's Caesar's. And then Jesus said, well, give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. And then he said, kind of a strange twist to the statement, he says, but give unto God that which is God's. And they all went away amazed by his wisdom and by his response. What really was going on there? Here's how I see it. Jesus said, okay, this coin has the image of Caesar on it, so render it unto Caesar. Give it to Caesar. But then he said, you, however, are stamped with the image of God. Give unto God that which is God's. You have the image of God stamped upon you, so give yourself to God. And when you were born, when you were conceived, God stamped his image on you. And then when you became a believer, when you were born again into the image of Christ, there were certain DNA features stamped in you. Just like when you're born the first time, you, you're kind of programmed to have maybe certain color eyes, certain color hair, body shape, all that kind of stuff from your physical DNA. But when you're born again, God stamps you with a certain DNA. And that DNA is a hunger for reading the Word of God. It's a hunger to pray. It's a hunger to worship, which includes stewardship. And everything we do becomes an act of worship when we're a follower of Jesus Christ. And it, it involves fellowship. It involves witness. So You've got this spiritual DNA going on inside of you, and unless you're flowing in these five pillars to victorious Christian life, you're not going to be completely fulfilled and completely effective in your life with Christ. So that's why this is so expensive. 
you've got the, the DNA of Bible, prayer, worship, fellowship, and witness, which is to be a, a, a fully devoted disciple of Jesus Christ stamped upon you. Last week, we, we talked about discipleship. We talked about really what it means to be a disciple. First of all, first characteristic, what it looks like is to put Jesus above every other relationship, every other aspect of our life. And that's not easy to do when you go into your daily life, but that's what Jesus calls us to. And uh, now these other five that I want to talk to you about just flow out of that. You've got to nail down the first one. You've got to take off our shoes in his presence, recognizing this is holy ground, and seal that covenant. Lord, make me your disciple, because unless you do that, these other things are really impossible to do. This is not a message of uh, wimpy, wimpy Christians. This is, this is not Christianity light, all right? This is pretty heavy stuff that we're getting into now here for the next few weeks. I love how Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I mentioned him last week, great German Lutheran theologian, and uh, he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And here's what he says in this uh, book, by way of introduction to our message. He says, cheap grace, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. On the other hand, costly grace, Bonhoeffer says, is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It's the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake one will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It's the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a man his life, and it's the grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it's costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us all. I don't want to be a Christian of cheap grace. Yeah, I'll accept the Lord as my Savior, kind of like fire insurance or hell insurance, but I don't want to go into the costly grace. No, I want all there is to being a disciple. We talked last week about uh, Matthew chapter 28. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. In order to make disciples, we said what? We have to first be a disciple. So that's what we're looking at here in this series is what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be in the inner circle of uh, who Jesus is, to, to get those insider briefings every day? When you wake up in the morning, you, you seek God with all of your heart. What does it mean to, to hear his voice whispering to you and giving you instructions for the day and comforting your soul and giving you his anointing? That's the kind of disciple that we want to be. It's kind of like when, when two people are in love. Sometimes they can read each other's minds or other people don't understand their communication, but those two do. That's the nature of being an inner circle disciple, like it says in the Psalms about Israel. 
It said Israel knew God's deeds. They could sort of see what he was doing from afar. But Moses, on the other hand, knew God's ways. They, Moses knew how, how God was thinking, if I could use such human terms to describe this. Moses was, was in the insider briefing room with God because he had that heart for God that he wants us to have as well. So this week, I have to say, the stakes get higher. The temperature gets hotter. This is not for everybody. This is not for spiritual wimps. But for those who want to be a true disciple, this is a very important message. At verse 27 now, last week we talked about Luke 14, 24, and 25, and 26. Today, we're starting at verse 27, and it simply says, Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So this is, this is number two in the series. We looked at number one last week. Today's number two. I don't know how far we'll get to number three today, but we'll go as far as we can. And uh, this, is a, this is a hard verse, you know. These are hard teachings, and a lot of times it's easy to just gloss over these verses that are hard for us to interpret. It's like, well, I, I don't know what that means, so let's just read something else. A lot of times when we've heard that phrase, uh, carry your cross, I've heard people say, well, you know, my mother-in-law is coming to live with us for a month, so I guess I have to carry my cross and put up. Uh, or I've heard people say, um, my back has been sore for so many weeks now, I, I'm carrying my cross with a sore back. Or I hate my job and I have to get up and go to work, and I, I guess I just have to carry my cross. And certainly we understand uh, what, what is being said there. However, that's really not what Jesus meant when he said, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to carry my cross. The cross has a very special significance. Uh, in the first century Palestine, when Jesus lived and walked, the cross was the most cruel, most torturous form of capital punishment there was. It was reserved for the worst criminals and murderers of all, not misdemeanor. This was the worst of the worst were executed by the cross. And it's interesting uh, how we, in our culture today, wear crosses around our neck as jewelry or as earrings or as rings. We see crosses all over the place. And I think if we could do like a time transport thing and go back to first century Palestine with our earrings, with crosses and necklaces, and I don't mean to say that there's anything wrong with that. It's a reminder of what Jesus did. But culturally speaking... If we were to go back into first century Palestine and they were to see us wearing jewelry in the shape of a cross, they would look at us and say, are you nuts? <laughs> you know? Why would you carry around on your neck and in your earrings a symbol of the most inhumane, torturous form of capital punishment created uh, ever? It, would be, it, it might be similar, if I could make a, a, an analogy, a parallel, if we were to walk around today with necklaces and earrings and rings that were fashioned like an electric chair, can you imagine if you walked around and had a beautiful gold electric chair around your neck? And you, yeah, yeah. Well, that's sort of what the cross meant to them. So when Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to carry your cross, what did he really mean? I was fascinated to read recently about the first century church, the early church, I don't mean the 9 o'clock service, I mean the church that existed right after the resurrection, 
for the first basically 400 years, we call that the early church, uh, I remember reading in this book that when they would gather together largely in homes, they didn't really have church buildings back then, they met together in homes. And they would gather together and they would, they would worship, like it says in the Psalms, you know, lift up your hands to the Lord. What they would do is interpret that to put their body in the shape of a cross. When it says in the Psalms, lift up your hands, today we, we go like this, right? We, but back in the early church, they would put their body in the shape of a cross like this as a way of identifying with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Like Paul, when he said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. So when they went to worship, they would be putting their body like this as a way of saying, Lord, I identify with your cross and dying to myself and doing the will of God. So what does it mean to carry our cross. Now, go with me a little bit on this one, if you will. Um, I uh, had the opportunity years ago to learn French. I think I mentioned that last week. And I learned that the word for cross in French is croix, C-R-O-I-X. And the word for crusade in French is croisade, which is, it comes from the word cross. A cru- the croisade comes from cross with the entomology or the word study of the whole thing. And so I began to think about that a little bit. And if you'll allow me this this morning, I would suggest to you that when Jesus said that if we're going to be his disciple, we have to carry our cross, one way we could interpret that verse is to say that he wants us to be a crusade. (laughs) Think with me for a minute about that. We're, we're going to go to the uh, Rock the Lakes Crusade. Many of us perhaps going to the Rock the Lakes Crusade next week here in Green Bay and Franklin Graham and Skillet and Michael W. Smith. And it'll be great. And the whole town in Green Bay will know that the name of Jesus is being exalted. And, and uh, what this is all about is, is announcing the good news of the kingdom of God. And so we're, we're planning uh, to go to a crusade. And that's a wonderful thing. And I would encourage you even to bring people along. And I know we, we talked in our home about who we're going to invite to that. And I want to bring three guys that live a couple houses down from us along to that crusade. And I'm praying for them this week and going to invite them uh, probably even tomorrow. And we encourage you to do the same. And, and yet the meaning here is so much deeper than just uh, attending a crusade. To, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to carry your cross, is to be a crusade. Not just go to a crusade, but to be a crusade. What does that mean? That means that wherever I go, whatever I do, everybody knows that the kingdom of God has come. That my life is about announcing the good news to everybody far and wide what I'm all about. So for Jesus, carrying the cross was literally doing the will of God. For us, carrying the cross is doing the will of God and being a crusade. To carry the cross means to be a crusade. Christ's first command to us in Mark chapter 1, he said, come after me and I will make you fishers of men. And I would suggest to you, if we're not fishing, we're probably not following. If we're not casting out the net there to bring people into the kingdom of God through our life and our witness and our words, I think it's logical to say we're probably not following him the way that we should be. That's not to put condemnation on us, but 
maybe to awaken us to the fact that if we're truly following Jesus Christ, we will be fishing for souls. His last command in Acts chapter 1-8, he said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So from beginning to end of Jesus' ministry, it was all about being a crusade. It was all about being a crusade. I believe that the church today has believed a huge lie. Think with me for, for just a few minutes about this. What would you say is the greatest strategic victory that Satan has ever achieved? I believe it's this, and that is to believe that it's primarily the task of the pastor to fight the battles of Christ, especially for the souls of men. I don't have to witness to my neighbors. That's what we hire Pastor Ryan to do, is to get all those people saved and get them into church. I don't have to witness to anybody. That's what the clergy, that's what the minister's job is to do. I believe that is the greatest tragedy that has befallen the church of Jesus Christ. Many people say, well, I I don't have the gift of evangelism, so I can't be expected to open my mouth and talk to other people about what it means to to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's kind of funny because you never hear people say, well, I'm sorry, I can't pray. I don't have the gift of prayer. Or people don't say, I'm sorry, I can't give. I don't have the gift of giving. Well, we'll come up with any sort of excuse, I guess, that works. But I look back at Acts chapter 8, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, Acts chapter 8, 1 through 4, again, a persecution breaks out against these early believers, and it says that they were scattered everywhere. Uh, the, the emperor Nero had come down on these early uh, believers, and, and they ran for their life everywhere except the apostles. The Bible said the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. They were the teachers. They were the the apostles in Jerusalem, but the believers, they were scattered everywhere, and they didn't just scatter. They didn't just run. What did they do? They witnessed to everybody they ran into, and pretty soon the whole, the then-known world heard the gospel of Jesus Christ because these believers who were being persecuted, who were being tortured because of their faith, ran out of Jerusalem to save their life, but as they were going, as we said earlier, as you go, make disciples, As they were going, they shared the gospel with everybody, and by the year 300, pretty much everybody in the Roman Empire had heard and accepted the message of Jesus Christ. Now, a little history lesson here. A.D. 313 comes along, and the emperor Constantine, who himself had become a follower of Jesus Christ, he issues what was called the Edict of Toleration, which said, all right, the persecution is going to stop I myself have become a follower of Jesus Christ, and we're not going to torture and kill Christians anymore. In fact, he said, if you live in this land called the Roman Empire, you are going to go to church. And so by the millions, the barbarians came into church, and we use that sort of as a pejorative term these days, but that actually was a group of people back then called the barbarians. And uh, actually, my daughters have called me a barbarian a few times. Anyhow, uh, the barbarians, The barbarians flooded into the church, and they didn't know God. They didn't have a personal relationship with him. And pretty soon, there was a division between the what they call the laity, or just average, regular believers who come to church, and the clergy, the ministers, because so many of them came in without knowing Christ. There was a separation. You are the professionals who are to evangelize, and we are just the people who show up because we're supposed to. And this is the biggest lie that Satan has ever brought to the church, that 
average, ordinary believers can't lead someone to Christ. That is false, I tell you. God's will is for every one of us to be a crusade. That's what it means to carry our cross. Now, our job as, as the, the, the ministers, if you will, is to equip you to share your faith. And I was so excited between services, somebody came up to me and said, I heard what you had to say, and I want you to train me to lead people to Christ. And I said, that's exactly what the goal of the sermon is. <laughs> so, Pastor Ryan and the rest of you leaders here, elders, if people come up to you and say, I want to be a soul winner, it's your job now, our job, to train them how to be a soul winner. And I think that's best done by what we call on-the-job training. It's not about more classes. You've got more information than you know what to do with already. It's about uh, on-the-job training where you come, come along. So if you want to come along with any one of the leaders when they're going to visit people or pray for the sick or going door-to-door, we're going to do that here pretty soon, that's how you learn how to be an evangelist. You don't learn how to fly an airplane in a classroom. God forbid if you're ever on a plane with a pilot that learned how to fly in a classroom. Neither do you learn how to be an evangelist in a classroom either. You learn by on-the-job training. And uh, I, for one, volunteer myself. If anybody would like to, to do some on-the-job training, we'll, we'll go door-to-door. We'll find somebody who'll listen to us as we share with them about Jesus Christ. Our job as, as the ministers is to equip you to be a crusade, to be a personal evangelist. Uh, one of my favorite stories about this is um, back in, uh, in Quebec, this is going back many 20 years ago, uh, I was learning French at the time and had just arrived, didn't know maybe but 100 words in French, and, and uh, I was, uh, kind of sounds funny, but I was actually in the shower one day, and I felt like the Lord told me to share the gospel with one of my classmates whose name was Raul. He came from Argentina. He only knew 100 words in French, and then he spoke Spanish. And I only knew 100 words in French and, of course, spoke English. So our, our intersection there was pretty small. <laughs> and yet I felt compelled in my heart. I just felt this connection, this uh, conviction to share the gospel with Raul. So I, in broken French, said, uh, will you meet me for breakfast? So we met at a restaurant for breakfast, and we sat down. And after we were done eating and had very minimal, light conversation I began to try and share the gospel with him. And I talked about the grace of God and the lostness of man and talked about who Jesus is and what he did and uh, how faith is the key that opens the door. And, and uh, at the end of this kind of pantomiming session and, and writing on a napkin, trying to, to communicate in French to this man who only spoke 100 words in French like I did, I, I was able to actually ask him at the end, would you like to receive... The, the gift of eternal life. And he answered me with the most terrifying word I've ever heard in my life. He said, we. <laughs> yes. And I thought, oh, great. Now what am I going to do? <laughs> I don't know how. So I, uh, I paid the bill, and we went out into my car. And I tried to pray in the broken French, and it was very, uh, you know, kind of a English-French combination thing going on there. And I didn't know if anybody understood, if anybody only God understood. And then after I said amen, Raul, he reached back into his pocket and he started to pull out his wallet. And I, and I said, no, no, that's not what this is about. I thought he was going to pay me for the prayer. His church tradition, that's what you do. You pay the priest for the prayer. And I said, no, you don't have to pay me. And, and he said, no, no, not about money. 
And he opens his wallet, and he pulls out this little picture of Jesus. <laughs> and he said, I have had this picture in my wallet for many years. For many years, I've wanted to know the man on this picture. And then he said to me, and it's amazing I understood this, but it's crystal clear. He said, now he's not only in my wallet, now he's in my heart. And that was the first prayer I ever prayed in French. And I'm thinking to myself, if God could use me in these hundred words that he and I had in common to communicate, and clearly Raul understood, how much more can he use us today? in sharing the love of God with people around us to be a crusade. The cost of non-discipleship is actually higher than the cost of discipleship. The cost of not being a disciple is very high for those who haven't heard the gospel. People will die without a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ unless we bring the gospel to them. I love Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah has this vision And he sees the Lord high and lifted up. And it said, Isaiah has uh, this this vision of the greatness of God. He said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. And then after seeing the greatness of God, he saw his own sinfulness as well. And then Isaiah said, and and I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And and then finally, the third part of Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter 6 is that uh, Isaiah received a call from God to share the gospel. And and the Lord said to him, who will go? Who will speak for us? Who can I send? And and Isaiah responds by saying, here I am, Lord, send me. That's our cry this morning as disciples of Jesus Christ, to have a vision where we see God high and lifted up. We see his greatness. And then we see our own unworthiness. and, And it's that sense of unworthiness, that sense of brokenness that drives us to the cross and enables us to receive his grace. And now as recipients of the grace of God, we go out and share that with others. Here am I, Lord. Send me. Somebody one time said that an evangelist is nothing more than a beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. (laughs) One beggar telling another beggar where he can find bread. That's what evangelism is all about. I have received the grace of God And now I share that with you as well. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. One of my friends from years ago in uh, Chicago days was named Gary Kenyuk, and he was a chaplain or actually a psychologist at Cook County Jail. And uh, Gary was a convert from Judaism and was a passionate follower of Jesus Christ. And uh, he would come into church every uh, week and clean and set up the chairs. And uh, 5 o'clock in the morning he was there vacuuming and uh, one day he told me about uh, an invitation he received to go to his high school reunion. And uh, there was an RSVP card in the invitation. He was to uh, list his highest accomplishment since graduating from high school. You know how they have those kind of forms to fill out. And uh, he filled out the form, and, and he simply said, uh, I died. That's what he wrote on there. You've got to know Gary to fully appreciate that. But he wrote, I died, and he sent it in. And at the time of the graduation, all the people are there at the dinner, and the MC is flipping through these RSVP cards, and he sees Gary's, and he reads it, and he says, uh, I died. And he looks out, and he sees Gary sitting there. And he says, well, I, I don't understand, Gary. According to your card here, you died, but you're very much alive. 
would you come up here and explain what's going on? So he gets up there in his uh, very uh, humble and shy sort of way. He says, well, yeah, I, you all didn't know this, but since I graduated from high school, I died to myself because now I'm alive in Christ. And for the next 10 minutes, he presented the gospel in front of all of his classmates about his conversion to Christ. And I thought, that is exactly what Jesus is talking about here in Luke 14, 27, when he said, what it means to be a disciple is to carry your cross, to be a crusade, to say, like the Apostle Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loves me and gave himself for me. So what do we see when we gaze into the cross? We've been talking about the cross and carrying our cross and being a crusade. I want to just end with the thought of what do we see when we gaze into the cross? Have you, ever, have you ever gazed into somebody's eyes before? Maybe somebody that you really love and your eyes are locked and you're gazing into them and uh, you can see things in people that other people on the outside can't see. And let's just take a moment here as we consider carrying the cross to gaze into the cross and see what we can see. As, as we gaze into the cross like lovers gaze into each other's eyes, the first thing I believe we would see is the love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The cross is about the love of God, the justice of God, the wrath of God was paid in full. Like if you go to a hardware store and they stamp on there, paid in full. That's what the cross is. The debt for your sin and my sin was paid in full at the cross. We look at the cross, we recognize the love of God. The debt has been paid for in full. The second thing we see when we gaze into the cross is, is the lostness of man. If there was any other way for God to reach out to people who are far away from him, surely he would have provided another way. But there was no other way. It took the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to bring us to God. So we see the, the lostness of man, like Isaiah did when he had that vision. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and then I, I, I see myself, I see my lips. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. We need to get a vision for the love of God, a vision for the lostness of man. And then finally, when we gaze into the cross, we see the value of a soul. And if we're going to be a crusade, if we're not just going to go to a crusade next week, but if we're going to be a crusade, we've got to get a vision for the value of a soul. For the value of one soul. Imagine with me for a minute, if we were able to, uh, to put right here in this sanctuary, uh, uh, all the dollars, all the American dollars that there are out there circulating around. It would be billions and billions of dollars. And even countries like Zimbabwe, they use American dollars. If you were able to gather all the dollars from all over the world that are in circulation and put them in a big pile right here, and then add to that all the, like, Japanese yen, you know, the billions and billions of Japanese yen, and add the Euro marks to that, and, and all, in fact, add all the currencies of the world in a huge pile right here, it would be a mountain of cash. Makes every fundraiser shout hallelujah. <laughs> now, if you could put over here, let's say a little girl from Haiti, you know, eight-year-old girl right here. Jesus said, 
What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? What Jesus is really saying is that one soul, the soul of an eight-year-old girl from Haiti who has nothing but the clothes on her back, is worth more than all of this cash, dollars and yen and euros and everything all stacked up here. Her soul is worth more than all these dollars because a soul has eternal value. Will you remember that phrase this morning, all throughout the day today? A soul has eternal value. The local church, Life Church, is the hope of Green Bay. An evangelizing, discipling Life Church is the hope of Green Bay and the hope of the world because a soul has eternal value. And we understand the value of a soul. And we are saying to ourselves, Lord, make me a disciple. Make me a crusade. I want to be a crusade. I don't want to just go to crusades one weekend a year and listen to Franklin Graham preach. I want to be a crusade. I want everybody at my school, everybody in my office, all of my family, I want them to know what, what I'm about, and that is the kingdom of God, glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. So this morning, I would like to encourage you and challenge you to accept this second descriptor of what Jesus said a disciple is, someone who carries the cross. Jesus said, you can't be my disciple unless you carry the cross and follow me. So could we just stand together? And I want to encourage you this morning to make a commitment in your heart as you stand with me. I want you to make a, a very serious commitment. And as I said earlier, this is, this is not for wimps, okay? If you want to just be a follower from afar, this probably doesn't apply to you. But if you want to move into that inner circle, like Peter, James, and John, and into the, the, the inner briefing room of Jesus, then I want to encourage you to say yes to this message here. Lord, I want to carry your cross. I want to be a crusade. I want to be equipped to be a reproducing disciple of Jesus Christ so that everywhere I go, people will know that I'm in love with Jesus. I'm not going to be a bull in a china shop, but I'm going to share the gospel with love and with a broken heart and with compassion to everybody that I can. And if you need to be trained, then you come up to Pastor Mary and Pastor Ryan and Pastor Lori and you say, trade me to share the gospel because I want to be a disciple. But I want to ask you today, put your body in the shape of the cross like those early disciples did. Put your arms out like this, if you will. You notice as you do that, not only are you identifying with Christ, but it, it sort of draws you into the people around you, which I believe is significant. When you say, Lord, make me your disciple, I want to carry your cross, and you put your arms out like this, what you're doing is, is you're inviting other people in as well, right? You're, you're kind of fellowshipping with the people around you by interlocking arms. So but put your arms out like this. If you'll say yes to the call to be a crusade, to carry your cross, put your body in the shape of a cross. Let's sing that together. I surrender. Lord, once again, we just ask you to make us a crusade because without it, our life will not be fulfilled. It's in our DNA, and we accept that now. In Jesus' name, amen.